The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Let me give you a couple of other examples of um, the way in which a philosophy of translation will affect uh, the, the rendering of the language. According to the formal correspondence theory, uh, you want to make sure that every time you have a word in the Greek, there's an English word that represents it. And uh, a good example of this would be the, uh, the conjunction chi in Greek. As you're probably aware, in the Gospel of Mark, and, and in some other books as well, but especially in the Gospel of Mark, you have chi, 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 chi. Almost every sentence begins with chi. Now, if you, again, if you pick up the New American Standard Bible using the fo- a, um, formal correspondence theory, you will find and, 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 and. Now, modern translations uh, usually take a different approach. They would ask themselves, what function is the chi, the Greek chi, um, there doing there? What is it doing there? What, what is it communicating? And how does English narrative usually work? If the chi is not adding anything to the meaning but simply linking sentences, then what you ask yourself is, well, what is the normal way to link sentences in their narrative in English? And you frequently omit the, the conjunction or might use some other ways of linking the, the sentences. And so, in the NIV, the Good News Bible, and so on, you will find that many places where you have a chi in Greek, you have nothing at all in the English translation. The same is true with little phrases like kai um, and it came to pass, as in Hebrew, the vayahi in Hebrew, and it came to pass, and it came to pass, and it came to pass. That's just the way in which in Hebrew you introduce the idea. So, you, so in, in the NASB, you keep it to represent the form of the original as, as much as possible. In dynamic equivalence, uh, translations, you don't necessarily keep it. You ask yourself, what is the normal way in which that idea is represented in English? And again, if it is merely introducing a sequence in the narrative, you might omit it altogether. Another kind of example, which is one of the more interesting ones, has to do with what I already mentioned, that according to the formal correspondence theory, once you have established a correspondence between a Greek word and an English word, you try to keep that all the time. According to a dynamic or functional equivalence uh, theory, you do not make a special effort to keep it all the time, but you're primarily asking the question, which is the more, 
which is the clearer English term in this context, rather than let's keep the same word. Now, a, a good example, excellent example of this is the way in which the term sarks is translated. Sarks, you know, literally means flesh. So if you go to the New American Standard Bible in Galatians, you will find flesh, 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 flesh all over. But you pick up the NIV, and I want to give you uh, the references here. First, in uh, Galatians 1.16, where Paul says, uh, uh, flesh and blood did not, uh, I did not consult with flesh and blood. Uh, the NIV says, I uh, consulted with no man. So here, flesh and blood is translated with man. In chapter 2.16, no flesh will be justified. Actually, the Greek says, all flesh will not be justified. So even the NASB does not do it literally. Nevertheless, no flesh will be justified. Uh, the NIV says, no one will be justified. So again, the word sarx, flesh, seems to not, not be there. In chapter 3, verse 3, that's where it speaks about having begun in the spirit, will you complete, complete it, finish it in the flesh? NIV says, uh, uh, bring, it to a, bring it to an end uh, with human effort. With human effort. Which I think is probably the right idea in that context. In chapter 4, verse 13, uh, the first time I came to you, I came because of the weakness in the flesh. NIV says, because of an illness. Of course, that's the meaning. Chapter 4, verse 23, that's where um, Paul says that, you know, the, um, the slave woman had a child and, and uh, the free woman had, another, had a child as well. But one had it, katasarka, according to the flesh, the other one, katapneuma, according to the spirit. But instead of according to the flesh, the NIV says, in the ordinary way, in the ordinary way, as opposed to by the power of the spirit. Or in chapter 5, that whole passage, verses 13 to the end, uh, you know, the, the works of the flesh are, and so on and so forth, the NIV has sinful nature. That's a kind of a controversial uh, rendering sinful nature, but uh, that's what the NIV does there. In chapter 6, verse 12, uh, I think that's where it says they want to uh, make a show, let's see, to, um, I think it's called how am I, to uh, boast in your flesh or something like that. NIV says they're trying to make a show of it outwardly, outwardly for the translation of the flesh. And then when you get to chapter 6, verse 13, lo and behold, the NIV says flesh. So finally, at the end of the, of the letter, they translate literally sarx with flesh. Now, you see, this is excellent because you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different renderings of the word flesh, depending on the context. In my judgment, every one of those renderings can be justified, it, it, is, it can be defended, 
if you want to have a, a translation that is clear to the English reader, you use a rendering that makes sense to him, that makes sense to him, okay? The problem, however, is that if you're doing a close study of the text, you're going to miss, and I don't think this is coincidental, a certain thread of argument in the letter. Because there is a kind of an interesting connection, really, between the use of the word flesh back in chapter 3, on the one hand, and in chapter 5, on the other hand. And um, if, if you do not, if you're not aware of that, you will miss the connection and possibly miss part of the meaning in, in the broader sense. So this is a, a difficulty that translators are always having to deal with. Uh, if you want to do justice to the clarity, you really want to help the reader to, to make sense of the passage right there in front of him or her, you do it one way. Uh, but you realize that by varying the translation, you miss what you might call the echoes, you see, with other passages in the Bible. So, philosophy of translation. Let me uh, uh, finish this thing a little bit just so that you know what's going on here. Interestingly, the King James Version probably is a little bit to this side of the NASB, although that might be, um, that might be disputed, but uh, you will find that the King James Version does not try to keep with the same translation of, of, of one word. For example, the word logos has about 20 different renderings in the, in the New Testament, the King James. Maybe word, maybe matter, maybe discourse, maybe all kinds of things. But definitely, it, it follows in that basic um, category. Um, interestingly, the, um, when the Revised Standard Version first came out in the 1940s and then the complete Bible in, in the 50s, you know, there was a tremendous outcry and people were very upset with it. And it was viewed as a radical kind of uh, translation. From our perspective today, it is a very, very moderate, quite literal, really, uh, rendering. The NIV is definitely more on this side. I think the NIV sort of falls in the middle, but perhaps a little bit towards the dynamic. Uh, they try to, to be fairly sensitive uh, to traditional forms of reading the Bible and so on, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, they are less, um, <clears throat> you know, novel or whatever. And then you have things like, um, you know, the New English Bible perhaps would belong here, which I um, affectionately call my heretic Bible. Uh, <laughs> when it first came out, I happened to be in England studying, and uh, I was... I, you know, was kind of prejudiced against it, but I thought, I guess I should first read it before criticizing it. So I brought it home. I started reading it in, uh, with my wife and um, started reading Joshua, thinking that I would read one chapter. And uh, I couldn't stop. I just had to keep reading until my mouth was dry in the five or six chapters or whatever. And uh, the New English Bible is, is very, very effective in narrative in the Old Testament. 
and uh, it's very valuable. Unfortunately, there are other passages, especially in the prophets, where uh, they take some rather uh, significant liberties with the text, and, and it's problematic. And of course, nowadays, there's the revised English Bible, and there's the new RSV, which is a little bit closer this way, and uh, what have you. Uh, the fourth category that I have here in the outline has to do with style. Yeah. I'm not even, I'm not really sure what it means to say that there's a supernatural endowment of, of meaning. I, I don't really think the process is significantly different from, from whenever you have a specialized group and they have to express new ideas. And they might take a, a word that is common but use it in certain specific contexts and now they take on a more specialized meaning. I think that's all that's happening there. Uh, although the examples you gave are a little bit controversial with that respect. But I, I don't think, I mean, what is supernatural, obviously, is the origin of the message and the fact that God has preserved the truth uh, even through human agents. Um, but the structure of the language, you see, the, the, the meanings in that sense, I, I don't think that's, that's supernaturally affected in that sense any more than any of the other things that the apostles would have done, you know, when they take a boat or when they communicate in writing or whatever. I don't think, I don't think that's exactly what's happening. But obviously, if you have a very powerful new message, that's going to affect the way in which the ideas are expressed. In the New American Standard Bible? Yeah. No, they don't do that. You mean the NIV, not the NASB? Really? How interesting. That's, that's interesting. See, that would be, that is not consistent with the formal correspondence theory. It is consistent with this. And the NIV does that very consistently. So that instead of saying a denarius, which means nothing to us, they will say a day's wage. And again, they will translate uh, measurements and then have a note giving you the literal rendering. That's a, that's a very interesting judgment call. Uh, what, what, you know, most people don't read notes. That's the footnotes, you see. So what, what are you more interested in, that a person get the meaning of the passage or that they get the form of, of the Greek language? Uh, the same goes for uh, times of the day. You know, an individual went out and looked for workers at the ninth hour and the, and the twelfth hour and this and the other. Uh, the NIV will say, you know, at nine o'clock and five o'clock and so on, and then have the uh, the literal thing in the note for people who are concerned about that. But it, it is definitely a problem. And uh, cultural differences, you know, you can take it to an extreme. The idea that if you're in a, uh, if you're translating to a tribe in South America or something, they've never heard of a of a um, of a lamb. Now, when you have passages that speak of lambs, you, you talk about pigs or whatever, uh, because otherwise they will understand, and uh, it can get very controversial. But uh, finding that line is, is difficult. Oh, now that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that is a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. I, yeah, I think that's that's true. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the NASB will normally do that. 
But his point is that if you don't look at the footnote, then you miss the, the symbolism of the numbers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I know the story, but frankly, I've forgotten it. Um, and the, I, my recollection is that the, the original idea was very, nobody expected that this would be a Bible that would be sold, you know. Uh, I think that what motivated it was the sense, you know, the Bible is so rich and so on that we ought to give all the possibilities. And, and um, I do think that most of the time it's very misleading. It's like the fellow, I remember when I was in California driving and turned on the radio and, and this fellow was talking about a certain word in the New Testament and then trying to explain what the word meant. He says, now if you pick up Roger's thesaurus, um, and then he starts giving all of the synonyms in English, assuming that that's going to shed light on what the Greek word meant, and of course it, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, the Amplified Bible isn't that, that extreme, of course, but I think it... See, here's the other problem, where we tend to think that because it's the Bible, therefore the language doesn't function the word that, that language normally functions. Words in every language have a certain fluidity. You know, they can mean different things in different contexts. But in every language, in a particular context, a speaker has a specific thing in mind. And that's what you're looking for and not multiplicity of meanings and richness and so on. And I think the Amplified Bible may have the, not always, but sometimes it could mislead people to, to begin to make associations that are just not there. Yeah. <clears throat> the language into which something is translated. So you have the source language, target language, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I think there's some translations which I, modern versions that I think definitely here you're talking about paraphrases that are, their main concern is not to identify the historical meaning but try to make a, some kind of a switch over, yeah. But normally, most of the translations that we're talking about here, I think uh, they, they make a, a, a genuine effort to know what was the speaker trying to say and what is the best way of saying it uh, today. But uh, we get to this fourth matter of style, which is very quick here, but bef before we lose track of it. Um, you may have two translators. They're using the same text. They have the same interpretation. They even have the same philosophy of translation. And in spite of that, their translation may be different simply because of style, stylistic choices. And one writer may prefer the word liberty where somebody prefers, somebody else prefers freedom. And, you know, it's not a substantive question. Uh, sometimes the word order, where you put the comma, whether you... Uh, prefer to uh, shorten the sentence C or whatever. All of those are stylistic decisions that could affect uh, the, uh, the translation, make it different from another translation, uh, but uh, it is a different category from the other ones that we have talked about. Uh, just in conclusion, uh, the question of choosing a version, the... Um, I think many people, when they ask you, what is, what do you think, what is your per, uh, favorite version? 
um, maybe what they're saying is something like if you were in an island, you know, and you could only have one version, which would you choose? You know, that's like asking you what piece of music would you have with you? That's impossible to answer. And I guess my response to that is, you know, I'm not in an island, and I don't have to make that choice. I, I think we need to appreciate that the multiplicity of versions uh, is a real blessing for us today. Now, every blessing comes with problems, you know, uh, regardless of what you're talking about. You, there used to be this old movie that was, I mean, this was back in the 30s or 40s, I don't know, 50s maybe, uh, Bible stories, and one of them had to do with the, um, with the paralytic, and in, in this particular movie, I never saw it, but somebody was, was uh, uh, describing to me, the four friends come, and of course they uh, tear up the, uh, the roof, and there's all this stuff falling down, you know, and now they bring down the paralytic, and Jesus heals him and, and, and saves him, and then there's a shot of the owner saying, who's going to pay for the roof? Um, <laughs> so with every blessing, there are problems. Um, the, uh, the multiplicity of versions has some problems. It does create confusion, no doubt about it. It does create a problem with Bible memorization and so on and so forth. But uh, it is really quite marvelous uh, to be able to compare versions and to see uh, different ways, different angles on it. Uh, here again, if I may give you an, exp a, a, an example with the New English Bible, um, when I first read Romans 5 in the New English Bible, I had studied that passage you know, in quite a bit of detail prior to it. And I remember when I read it in the New English Bible, it sort of you know, flashed on me in a way that it hadn't before. Uh, sometimes when you read something uh, that is freshly phrased, it can have an impact on you. It can help you see things that you would not, might not have seen otherwise. And um, I, I still think that there is a, a very important uh, value in, um, in having one version that is more or less a standard that that helps you in, in uh, consistency, again, Bible memorization and so on. And uh, I do think that the NIV does a pretty good job of that. It's not perfect, you know, there are problems with it, but generally speaking, it is, uh, it is clear. It uh, conveys the meaning of the original accurately. I don't think um, that just because you make it more literal, King James or NASB, you get the, the meaning better, not at all. Sometimes exactly because it is literal. Uh, you may not be able to catch what's going on the way that you would, would with a more uh, you know, modernized type of translation. But uh, there are problems. And uh, I would say, if you know a little bit of Greek and Hebrew, the NASB is great. Uh, if you're going through the Hebrew, the Greek, and you're going through passages that are a little bit difficult, having the NASB next to you, uh, you know, helps you figure it out a little bit more easily than if you have a, a, you know, one of these versions. And if you're doing Bible study, again, it can be of help in, in that respect to see patterns or whatever. Although, of course, it's, it's not going to be exact. You might as well take a, a Greek or Hebrew concordance for that. But um, don't, don't be um, afraid to um, use more than one version. And uh, 
appreciate the strengths and, and the weaknesses uh, of each of them and, and go from there. All right, any other questions about translation? Yeah. Undoubtedly, uh, you know, everybody has prejudices in education and knowledge and contacts that is going to influence the way you translate. I, however, don't really believe that for most of these modern translations, for example, let's take the typical uh, problem that I think comes up, a liberal translating or an evangelical translating. It is extremely rare to my in, in my experience, that just because a translator has a liberal theology, that the translation will necessarily uh, convey a liberal understanding of the text. Now, it may happen in certain, in certain passages. For example, in Romans 9, there are two different ways of, of punctuating the sentence. One of the ways of punctuating it as, uh, speaks of Christ being God. The other way of punctuating it, there's a distinction between Christ and God. And you might argue, well, a liberal is more likely to choose a rendering that does not say uh, that Christ is God. That can happen. The other side of it is that an evangelical might choose the one that ascribes deity to Christ, even though the text really should be viewed the other way. You see, it goes in either direction. And um, I am not, uh, of course, there's another problem involved. Uh, sometimes uh, people say that, that the, uh, the production of the Good News Bible may have been affected by people who do not have a strong view of inerrancy and that, therefore, they take great liberties with the text. And again, I don't think that's a totally fair way of looking at it. I think that's what's uh, motivating them is a certain philosophy of translation based on linguistic principles and not necessarily uh, that they have a, a lesser view of the authority of the text. That may be true, but I don't think that the, the result, I don't think that you can make a one-to-one -one connection, let me put it that way between a person's theology and the result in translation. I think that people with different theological viewpoints may adopt different uh, approaches to translation. And uh, sometimes, undoubtedly, their theological background or cultural background, whatever, will show through. But I, again, my experience is that that is not a really common problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think that now, obviously, since um, English is so widely spoken in a variety of countries, that that may have, in, and, and you have a strong evangelical, uh, you know, const, uh, constitution in, in the population, that also affects it. But no, the um, the tendency for a variety of translations is not at all unique in English. And I think in German there are a few. More, a lot more than there would have been, you know, 60 or 80 years ago. In Spanish, this is also becoming very common. Yeah, but it may be a particular, particularly evident in, in the English-speaking world. Other questions on translation? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I think the, uh, the real problem is, as we have seen, there is the question of interpretation involved whenever you're translating. And I don't want to minimize that. I mean, I, I do think that uh, a person's theological viewpoint is going to, to have an effect. Uh, there is also something that uh, is important, and, and that is that Bible interpretation ought to take place within the, um, within the community of believers. The reason it's difficult to respond to your question is that we all know that there are a lot of people out there, scholars, who may have very little to do with the church, and yet they really have contributed significantly to our understanding of the text. Some may be not just liberals, but absolute radicals or atheists and Jews and this and the other. And they may have a particular specialty that allows them to, to resolve certain problems. And then all of us, you know, benefit from it. And I think one has to make allowance for that and realize that people who have no tie-ins with the church, they might be able to produce a translation that is quite good. And that, I think that has happened. And I, I wouldn't want to say that uh, it is, you know, immoral or illegal or something for, for that to happen. But uh, the other factor is that if the Bible is going to be read by believers in the church, whoever is producing the translation has to do it in a way that, that fits in with you know, what that faith is, what worship is all about. Now, for example, in this uh, Spanish project that I've been involved in, very frequently as we're considering making decisions, we're, we're asking ourselves, wait a minute, how is this going to sound when you read it out loud in a public worship setting, both in terms of the dignity of the language, uh, in terms of clarity, because perhaps the punctuation will not be as clear when, when you don't, we're not looking at it but just reading it and that sort of thing. And, and, and that is a factor that also probably needs to be taken into account to produce a version that will really serve the people of God. Uh, so, you know, there isn't a black and white answer to that kind of question, but I would say in general, yeah, it, it, this is the responsibility of, uh, of people who are part of that community, primarily. Well, we have 20 minutes, and uh, see, see if we have questions on um, other portions of the course. Please let me remind you again, uh, this is extremely important, what's on the first page of the syllabus. Uh, there is that one exam in the library. If you get a hold of a copy of, a, of another exam, that is illegal. And, uh, you know, you failed <laughs> the exam if, uh, if you have knowledge, because for all I know, you may be studying from the very exam that I'm going to use. Maybe yes, maybe no. But uh, that one copy in the library is the only one that you're allowed to, to look at. Uh, in connection with this uh, with this exam, um, but I don't know whether in in the context of studying for the material, I hope you've been studying since the exam is tomorrow, whether you have any um, any remaining questions about the material. Yeah.
as long as it is just that one exam, that's not a problem, right? Yeah. Zadok, yeah. Uh, at the time of Solomon, the, um, the high priest had the name of Zadok. And the reason he becomes important is that from that time on, uh, it was his line that was viewed as the one that should rightly produce the high priest. Now, that was not actually a biblical command as such. But then when we get to the Maccabean period, and uh, people who did not belong to the Zadokite line are designated as high priests, that was very offensive and was viewed as a violation of what had become a, an accepted custom for the Jews. I would doubt that. Only one descent of Aaron by that time? I guess that's not I don't think so. I, I think what's happened, what really happens is that... Eli, his sons were... Yeah, that's all right, but... but um, Two of them died in the wilderness. Yeah, but you would still see, if, if anything, I think what was really going on is you have so many Aaronites by that time that it makes sense to further restrict the line. But we're not given any specific information or, of how or why that happened. Yes, if you'll recall, the point was that in the classical period, you have interest in metaphysics. So there was a shift from metaphysics to ethics in the Hellenistic <laughs> period. People were not as interested in metaphysics. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Theory, right. Uh, mm -hmm. Are you are you equating the Sadducees with the Zadokites? No. There is one theory that that there is a connection between Zadok and the Sadducees, but uh, that is very controversial as well. And uh, no, I think it would be wrong to assume that the Sadducees were Zadokites. Uh, yeah. Again, there's some unknowns. We know, we know almost nothing of the origins of the Sadducees. Uh, but uh, eventually the Sadducees simply became kind of the ruling priestly class, that's all. Yeah. yeah. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the book was on. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I understood. I was just saying this. Yeah. Um, if you pick up almost any book on Daniel nowadays written by mainstream scholars, they will say that Daniel was written in the second century. They will admit that uh, some of the stories in Daniel may be older than that, but that the book was actually you know, put together, as we have it now, in the Maccabean period, so that it would not be, as, it would not be historical. Because, see, the, the book... Uh, claims to have been written by Daniel back in the 6th century. Now, there may be some true... See, a, a mainstream scholar would say there may be some true stories included there, but the basic claim of the book that it was written by a gentleman named Daniel who lived in the 6th century, that's not true. And one of the reasons given is that the prophecies in chapter 7 and following correspond so closely with the events in the second century 
that they say it's impossible. How could somebody have predicted things so clearly? Well, obviously, for somebody who believes in the authority of the Bible, that's not a problem. Okay. Uh, however, there are also some evangelical scholars who believe in the authority of the Bible and who have been persuaded by this theory uh, because there's some other factor, something about the style, the language, and this and the other. Uh, the, the specific argument that I think I, you may have in mind here that I was trying to develop was this. One of the arguments uh, for the view that Daniel was written in the second century is that it has the form of an apocalypse, of a, of a pseudepigraphic apocalyptic piece of literature. And my response to that argument was, not exactly, because normally when you have a pseudepigraphic writing of that type, the, the person who is claimed to have written the book is some very famous figure from antiquity, Abraham or Jacob or somebody like that. Well, you see, if the book of Daniel was not written by Daniel in the sixth century, then he would be something of an unknown. So why would somebody use the, the, the name of Daniel uh, to, to make the point? Uh, to my mind, that is actually an argument in favor of the view that Daniel is, really goes back to the sixth century, and that if anything, Daniel may have then provided a, a pattern for what then later people began to do with these pseudepigraphic uh, styles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, I don't think. I don't think. In, I'm not sure what the question is. That doesn't sound quite right. But uh, right. That is the answer. Yeah. But that's semantic influence in general, not just semantic loans as such, any kind of interference, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, briefly, let, yeah, let, let, first let's take the distinction between halakha and Haggadah. That's, that's the broadest kind of distinction. Halakha has to do with legal kind of literature. Whenever you're discussing the meaning of the law, how, how it ought to be applied, you know, regulation of conduct, that sort of thing, that's halakha. Haggadah is anything else. Maybe anecdotes, maybe proverbs, maybe folklore, uh, anything that is not halakhic in nature is haggadic. Okay? Now, Mishnah is a book which contains the oral law. So when the oral law was finally written down, the result was the six tractates of the Mishnah. Midrash has a couple of different terms. In, in, in the simplest common meaning, it simply means uh, interpretation. For some people, it has a more nuanced idea of, of, of distinctively Jewish interpretation or something like that. But the other major meaning of the term Midrash is a commentary on the Bible. Now, not exactly the same type of commentary that we're used to today, but nevertheless, a, a running commentary and illustration of the biblical text. 
The Mishnah is almost totally uh, halakhic in character. That's true. That's true. Because, it, because most of it deals with you know, very detailed regulations about the, uh, the law, yeah. However, with the Midrash, that's a whole Bible. Getting... Yeah, book Bible, not, not a whole Bible, but, but many books. And in that case, if it's a Midrash in Genesis, it probably is not halakhic, although there may be a few passages that are of that type. But if it's a Midrash in Leviticus, it's almost certainly going to be halakhic because it deals with regulations. I'm not sure that Loza really says that. I, I think uh, it's true that Loza is writing at a time where, where some of these things were still being debated to some degree. Uh, but I think everybody would recognize that, that in, in its, um, uh, its more crystallized fashion, form, where you have distinct doctrines and so on, there's no evidence of any of that in the, in the first century. Um, but there has been some debate as to whether what you find in the second century may have already existed to some degree in the first. Now, it may be that Loza, when he wrote that book, you know, was perhaps more positive to that possibility than many people are today. But um, I, think, I think the growing consensus was, is now, that uh, what you have in the first century is only an, an incipient type of, of Gnosticism with you know, some emphasis on dualism and some of those things, but certainly not the, the more developed ideas that are only attested uh, beginning with the second century. Not, not the Gnosticism of the second, but possibly the incipient Gnosticism of the first, yes. There was another question, yeah? High priest. Yeah, now again, we cannot be positive about that. I think most scholars today would date it about that time, but there's some dispute. Boy, that is awfully early. Um, see, the, the point, however, the point is that when the, the Qumran documents speak about the wicked priest, the question becomes, which priest are we going to identify here? And the two most popular possibilities have been Jonathan, or Alexander Janius. A third possibility is Simeon. But Jonathan is the one that has gotten most uh, support. Yeah. Well, Pharisees and Sadducees completely distinct categories. Well, I guess they died out with the, the 70, 70 uh, um. To call the ruling class is not the best way of putting it. Um, the, the use of the term ruling class is more applicable to the Maccabean period because you have the Hasmoneans being actually the people who are governing the people. Uh, but it is true that, you know, and things went up and down during the period, but the Pharisees at some points became more powerful and had uh, also some, uh, you know, influence in some of the decisions. But but when we, in using the term uh, aristocratic, we, we have in mind primarily the high priestly aristocracy. And that's where the Sadducees come into play primarily. Dynamic equivalence. However, I was trying to make the point that, uh, especially in the, in the Old Testament, there's a tendency to try to be a little bit more conservative. And that's why it's almost in the middle. 
but yeah, you would certainly not call this formal correspondence by any means. It's more on this side. But Philo did not write history as such. He wrote a justification of basic non-historical. He wrote uh, uh, interpretations of the Bible, philosophical discussions, but not a history of the Jews or anything like that. What distinguishes what? Oh. Um, well, it's an interesting question because there are some things that I said about the Stoics that the Cynics shared with the Stoics. For example, a lot of emphasis on, uh, on uh, not paying too much attention with external things, that kind of thing. But the Cynics were a, you know, a nonconformist group of philosophers, if you will, who tried to get their point across by being as uh, sometimes downright offensive. You know, they might uh, you know, start walking naked on the, on, the, on the streets simply to make a point about uh, society or whatever. And so they got a bad reputation. They were like, um, some people have called them the, um, uh, the hippies of, of, the, uh, of the ancient world because uh, they were just trying to uh, attack convention. But uh, they did share some ideas with, with the Stoics uh, with regard to the, uh, uh, to the need not to, um, not to be uh, burdened by external questions and, and be more concerned by one's own uh, judgments and so on.